Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. Good morning, church. Good morning. I want to take you down memory lane. Some of you will remember this very clearly back in 1996. Some of you are old enough, you have vivid memories of, of that time in 96 when aliens were invading the earth and they intended to destroy our planet and they had hovered over the largest cities across the world and all of the world's militaries came together and were trying to throw everything we could at them and, and it was of no avail. At that time, we didn't have Avengers, we didn't have Iron Man, Black Panther, Captain Marvel couldn't save us. We had Will Smith and back in the 90s, he flew fighter jets Uh, We had Jeff Goldblum. I don't know what he did for a living, but he was really, really smart. (laughs) And after all of our militaries had done everything that they could do in their might with all of their planning and all of their strategies and firepower, we were done until Will and Jeff said, we got this. And they stole an alien spacecraft and they flew it up. You remember, they flew it up there and they landed on the mothership and they intended to upload a virus to destroy all the aliens. And they had a plan. They didn't know if it would work or not, but they got up there And there's a moment, and I don't know if if all of you know about this moment between Will and Jeff. They had this kind of private moment between the two of them, not sure if this was going to work or not. And Jeff just kind of looked at Will and said, you know, all we can do now is pray. I mean, it's amazing. And, and of course, we know what happened in the end. We're still here and all. So (laughs) thank goodness we survived that one. And, And there may be another day that we face a similar thing, but we made it through 1996, right? Good year good year for us in 1996, and we continue to celebrate that to this day. The thing that sticks with me, though, is what what Jeff said to Will. He said, all we can do now is pray, because that's something I've said before. And likely you've said that or something like that, or you know people who live their lives kind of like that. And instead of prayer being this thing that is as common to us as breathing and eating and drinking and walking and talking, prayer is this thing that's like a little glass box on the wall that says, break in case of emergency. And after we have tried everything, everything we could know, everything that we feel like we could do in our power, then and only then we say, I guess all I can do now is pray, right? And as Dustin said, we've entered into the Lenten season. And during the Lenten season, one of the things that we do is we're invited to move further up and further in into relationship with the Lord in prayer. And so we're going to focus on prayer over the next five weeks as we make our way journeying towards Easter. I expect that we will probably pray more. This week, I started the week, I thought about praying more. And I thought about it for several days, and then eventually I began to do it some. And that may be kind of like your own intentions as we move through Lent. I desire to pray more, and I want to understand what the Lord has for me in prayer And so we are going to learn from Jesus and his prayers. Before we do and get into our text this morning, I just want to speak to you just with some pastoral counsel, pastoral advice, and talk to you about four things about prayer in general that I think a lot of us misunderstand. We miss the point and the purpose of prayer. Four things that we find in general in our prayer life to be true, specifically of Jesus' prayer life, and I'd like you to hear this morning before we get to our text. The first thing is this, that prayer is not something that you have to do. Prayer is something that you get to do. It's a subtle shift there. It's like going to a parent who absolutely adores you, loves you, has wisdom, has walked through some stuff in this life and says, I'm here for you. 
And, and this is how Jesus turned to his father in prayer. Notice how often when, when Jesus is praying, how often he just, Father, I need to talk to you right now. And I think a lot of times, and some of you know this, when we're young, we don't really appreciate what it is to have a, a parent or a grandparent or some other important figure in our life who's gone through it and who deeply cares for us and wants what's best for us and has some wisdom to impart to us when we're young. We don't really appreciate that. But as we get older, then we begin to go, oh, I see. I can see their love. I can see how important it is for me to get opportunity to speak with this person. And this is how Jesus went to his father in prayer. And he was encouraged that every time he did, John 11 says that his father always heard his prayers. He didn't have to pray. He desired to pray. And he knew that on the other end, he had a listening ear, a compassionate heart, always waiting for him. And so I want to encourage you as we move through Lent, and you might be encouraged to pray more than, than you have been. How much more? Just, you know, more, that much more. As you continue to pray deeper in, in prayer through this season, to remember that prayer isn't something that you have to do. It's not a discipline that you just have to, you got to do this in your life and check it off the box so you can say, I was a good Christian boy or girl this week. But it's something you get to do. You get to talk to the God who made you and who knows you best, who loves you and only wants what's best for you in your life. And it's an attitude shift. More than a discipline, it's an attitude shift, a posture shift. And I encourage you, if you take that into prayer, that it's not just something you have to do, but you get to do it. You're going to see things happen in your prayer life that you wouldn't have expected before. Second thing is this. Uh, prayer is not a burden-giving duty, but it should be a burden-lifting delight. Prayers shouldn't be a burden on your life, and sometimes maybe it's felt like that. Oh, I've got to do my prayers. But rather, prayer is where you should bring your burdens, whatever they may be, and lay them down before the Lord, seeking his relief and his comfort and his counsel and his presence in your life to lift you up. Ephesians, or no, sorry, Hebrews, Hebrews 5 says this, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears, which reminds us that when Jesus did come on earth, he did know the human experience, and he was full of fears, he was full of pains, he suffered, he grew weary, he had struggles, and so when he did that, he lifted up prayers and petitions to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission, or in other words, because he humbly trusted his father's goodness in his life. And that's why we're told in 1 Peter 5, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he might exalt you, or in other words, lift you up at the proper time, casting all of your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Because he really does. He knows you. He knows what you're going through, and he cares for you. When I ask people, how's your prayer life? I'm, I'm sitting and talking with someone over coffee or in my office. I go, well, how have your prayers been lately? I think a lot of times something begins to happen. It happens in me sometimes if you ask me, how's your prayer life? I begin to feel a little bit of guilt. Not everybody's this way, but I begin to feel a little bit of guilt. And, and I start thinking, well, I should be doing it more. I haven't done it enough. I, did I pray about this thing? Did I, how much have I been doing on my own strength? And how, how much should I have been praying to the Lord? But more than discipline, more than any of that, it's this attitude again that we bring to prayer. It's not a burden giving duty that we should be wearing upon our shoulders. Oh, I must pray today, but it's this burden lifting delight. We say, Father, I'm so glad that you care for me. I have all of these burdens of the world that I've been trying to carry on my own. I just want to lay them down before you and trust your goodness and your presence in my life to bring relief and grace and mercy and comfort. There's a third thing 
I think you should know about prayer. It's not telling God about anything, but it's inviting God into everything. That's a shift, right? Because I think a lot of times we're thinking, I need to confess this thing to God. Or, or like, I can't talk to God about this. You know, there's this thing that just feels like it's inappropriate to go to God and talk to him about this. These thoughts I've been having, these feelings that I've had. There are some parts of my life it feels like this is too crass to talk to God about. Or maybe it's, you know, th this would offend God if I talked to him about that. Or, or maybe, you know, I just want to keep this part of my life over here because, you know, it, it just feels like it's a little dark. And if I bring that under the light, oh gosh, I don't want to deal with that before the Lord. But let me let you know something that you probably already know, and that's that God already knows. Like there is never a moment in this in entire life that you live where you will go to God and say something and he'll go, oh my goodness. I had no idea that you were thinking that. Oh, wow. I'm astounded to learn that from you today. But always, always God's going, yeah, I know. I know. And how many of you who, who've been a parent, you've had a child, you know your child. You've watched them since they were babies. You watch their faces. You know what their faces mean when they make certain expressions on their face. And you know your kid's going through something. And you're like, hey, how you doing? Especially when they get to be teenagers, they just go, fine. <laughs> and you go, no, 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 how you doing? And they go, fine, right? I'm getting that look. I see that look more and more now. And you go, on the inside, you're going, no, you're not. You're not fine. I, I know what you're going through, and you need to talk. I want you to talk with me. But regardless whether you talk to me or not, I'm here. I'm here. And this is like what it's like with God. When Jesus went to his father, he never was going, oh, I got a doozy to tell you. You're going to need to sit down, Father in heaven. I need to tell you something, and it may be a little bit surprising. But instead, when Jesus prayed, it was kind of cool. It's like they always started mid-sentence, where he would say, yeah, that thing that I'm facing, would you please come into me and give me comfort? Give me help in my moment of distress. Would you help me when I'm struggling? There's this moment right before Jesus is arrested. Right? It says this line, and this line just sticks to your soul. Jesus says, my soul is deeply grieved, even to the point of you hear that? He says this to his disciples. Jesus, king of, of all kings, lord of all lords, in his humanity, walking towards his arrest and crucifixion, goes, my soul is so deeply grieved, I could just die. And you probably felt like that at some point in your life. There was something so burdensome, so wearying, so life-draining, so frightening, terrifying, that you go, I just feel like I could die. And Jesus says this. And what does he do in that moment? He prays, right? I'm grieved even to the point of death. Jesus isn't like, oh, if I tell that to my father, he's going to say, oh, you of little faith. No, he goes, I'm so grieved to the point of death. I just got to talk to my dad about it. And so he goes to him, and he's not telling the father something he doesn't already know. He's telling him something he already knows. He knows how Jesus feels in this moment. So Jesus isn't telling him something new. He's inviting him into his grief and his feelings and his concerns. And, and I wonder uh, how many times when we think of prayer, we think of it as, I've got to open up and tell some, God something that he doesn't know about my life. Try inviting him into the things that he already knows. Try thinking about how he already knows the things you're thinking and you're feeling, and he just wants to be invited in to bring you counsel and comfort and support, right? There's a fourth thing. 
Prayer is less about moving God's hand, and it's more about moving our heart. You hear that? Prayer is less about moving God's hand and more about God moving our heart. Now, God may hear your humble requests and receive them, but God is not looking to be your personal assistant. He's looking to be your Lord, right? Do we, do we know this? God's not looking to be your personal assistant or your magic genie. He's looking to be your Lord. Go back to the Garden of Gethsemane prayer. After his soul is so deeply grieved to the point of death, he turns to his Father in heaven. Here's his prayer. He says, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Then he says, yet, not as I will, but as you will, right? He says the second thing. He says, my Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, then your will be done. You see, even in Jesus, prayer was less about God changing his circumstances, but about God moving his heart in the middle of his terrifying circumstances. And that's what prayer is for us. It's so often less about God change my circumstances and so much more about God, would you, would you help move in my heart and my life in the middle of the thing that I'm facing? Now, that's about as long as I can do to get around to our text this morning. It's the, the very, very long way around. But I, as I looked at this in a focus on prayer over the next five weeks, I just realized there's some things that I want to say to you as your pastor that I may not get to see, say to you as a large group. If you came in and we, we met this week, I might say these things to you, but I wanted you to all to hear them and be encouraged and be invited deeper into prayer over the next five weeks as we make our way till Easter. But this morning, I want to turn you to the, the real Lord's Prayer. And I call it the real Lord's Prayer because if I said turn to the Lord's Prayer, you would be thinking about that moment in Luke when the disciples go to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, John taught his disciples how to pray. Would you teach us then how to pray? And Jesus goes, well, okay, first of all, don't pray like the hypocrites and don't just mutter a bunch of repetitious words thinking that there's power just in some kind of mantra or, or catchphrase, but instead pray in this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, and so on and so forth. And we go, that's the Lord's prayer, right? But I think that's really more of like the Lord's prayer for his disciples or the disciples' prayer or the, the, the prayer that Jesus would give to any who would follow him. And that's because there's something in that prayer that really wouldn't make sense for Jesus to say at all. There's a line in that Lord's prayer that Jesus could never say genuinely of his experience in, in eternity or even in his incarnation on earth. Do you know what line that is? Forgive us our sins right? Jesus could never utter those words because Jesus never, he never sinned. And so that Lord's Prayer really is the prayer for the disciples. It's the Lord's Prayer for us to follow. But there's another prayer that really is his prayer that just pours out his heart before his Father. And it's found in John chapter 17. So grab your Bible, turn to John 17. That's where we're going to be for five weeks, John 17. And <laughs> I've read this chapter quite a bit over the last few months coming to it, and I kind of find more every time I turn to it. When you read John 17, you feel like the proverbial mosquito at the nudist colony. You know, where do I begin? <laughs> so much here. <laughs> I heard one pastor preached a 45-week sermon series on John 17, 45 weeks. And I read another pastor wrote a 700-page book on John 17, and we're nowhere going to get close to that, but we're going to spend five weeks 
in John 17. And this is where we'll begin. We'll begin by uh, reading the first five verses today. And honestly, as I moved through the week, the further I did, the more I wished I had just started with verse one and like the first half of verse one had been our focus today. There's so much there for us, but we'll try to get through the five verses that begin the chapter. It starts like this, chapter 17, verse one. Jesus spoke these things. He had just been talking about what would happen next, his arrest, his crucifixion, his resurrection, preparing the disciples' minds and hearts for that. Jesus spoke these things, and then lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you've given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. With our time that we've got, I want you to see three themes that are in Jesus' mind, three things that are in his heart that are filling the inner, inner man of Jesus that come bursting out in this prayer. First is God's sovereignty. Second is God's glory. And third is the definition uh, of what eternal life is. God's sovereignty, God's glory, and eternal life have filled Jesus' mind and heart as he is moving towards the cross. First thing Jesus has on his mind is his deep and abiding trust in God's sovereignty and his securing hand. And we see this in just five words in verse 1. In verse 1, you might mark this line. Father, word 1, the hour has come. Y'all say that with me. Father, the hour has come. Until this moment, what has been unmistakable is until this moment, the hour had not yet come. And you go back and think about it, even from the moments of Jesus' birth, everything was pointed against him. King Herod wanted him found and wanted him killed, right? Why did Herod fail? Well, we're told in Matthew 2, God the Father sent an angel to give instructions to Mary and Joseph to take Jesus and, and for them to go to Egypt and remain there until Herod died. Why? Because it was the Father's sovereign plan that the hour had not yet come. It hadn't yet come, so there's no way Herod could touch Jesus at that point. Luke 4, Jesus now, he's a man, he's doing ministry, he's teaching, he's revealing himself, he's doing miracles. People aren't happy, religious leaders aren't happy about the things that, that he's saying. They're enraged, they got up, they drove him out of the city, they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to, they're going to throw him off the cliff, they're going to kill Jesus. And then there's this moment, and there are these a few moments like this in the gospel where you go, what on earth just happened? Look at verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went away from them. Like they have collected Jesus. They are moving him towards a cliff to throw him off. And then, boom, he's not there anymore. What happened? His hour had not yet come. And the Father provided. It's an interesting phrase in, in John 2 at the wedding of Cana where Jesus performed his first miracle. Remember, they had run out of celebratory wine, and his mother, Mary, came to him and said, Jesus, they've run out of wine. Will you do something? And what does Jesus say to her? He says, my hour has not yet come. It's not time for the events that will lead to my crucifixion to begin yet. My hour has not yet come. And you keep seeing it over and over again. John 7, 6 through 8, my time has not yet come. Two times. John 7, uh, verse 30, Jesus has just declared that he's been sent by the Father in heaven, his heavenly Father. 
He's been sent by him to do his work, to do his will. And he says to the religious leaders who claim to know God so well, to be so well acquainted with him and his will, he says, you actually don't know him at all. This is, is what it says next. It says, they were seeking to seize Jesus, but no man could lay his hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. God's sovereign hand, his securing hand, was moving Jesus forward. And there were always those who were determined to see Jesus eliminated. There were always people that wanted to wipe him away and wipe him out of the story. There were always people that wanted to take him out, but they failed every time. They couldn't do it. It wasn't because they didn't have the guts or the numbers or the the plan to get it done. It was because they were severely outmatched because God's sovereignty is unmatched. And God's will was that his hour had not yet come up until this point in John 17 when Jesus is praying. Up until this point, no one could lay a hand on Jesus because his hour had not yet come. And now, 4,000 years after Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden took from the fruit, they disobeyed God. They said, we'll go our own way. We want to be our own lords of our life. We want to be like our own little gods. After the fall, 4,000 years later, the seed of Eve was going to crush the head of the serpent. Anybody remember Genesis 3.15? The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Now it is time. Now the hour has come because Jesus is ready as the atoning sacrifice who will pay the penalty for human sins and redeem us and redeem our lives. Sam Storm said this, the alarm on heaven's clock has sounded. The predetermined plan of God had reached its apex and the hour of redemption had arrived. And that's the reason why after everything that we've observed about the hour has not yet come, they were going to throw him off a cliff, but they couldn't. They sought to seize him, but no one could lay their hands on him. Why now, after praying in the garden, when Jesus leaves the garden, that's why now in Matthew 26, they came and they laid hands on Jesus and they seized him. They could do it because it was time. Because God said it was time. In John 12, Jesus was thinking ahead to this moment. And he said, Father, what should I say? Should I say, save me from this hour? I says, oh, but no. For this purpose, I have come to this hour. And we begin to believe as we string all of this together, for the, maybe for the first time, or, or it just begins to grow and dawn on us how much Jesus really, really was confident in his Father's sovereign hand and his securing hand for all of the hours and days and minutes of his life, that he was confident in the divine timetable that was carrying through for all of his living days and even for his dying day. And I was stunned this week reading a little comment by J.C. Ryle uh, about this. It almost, at first I read it, it almost took me out and said, that's just such a cheesy Christian spiritualized sentiment. But the more I sat on it, the more it began to dawn how powerful these words are. J.C. Ryle said, let us remember, though in a far lower sense, that believers are all immortal till their hour is come, until then they are safe and cannot be harmed by death. Just let that sit for just a moment on you. Let us remember, though in a far lower sense, that believers are all immortal until their hour is come. Until then, they are safe and cannot be harmed by death. What Ryle was talking about is what the whole New Testament teaches over and over and over again. That God is sovereign over everything. Ephesians 1.11 tells us that God works all things after the counsel of his will. All things means, anybody want to guess? Now, you're, you're right. Good guess. All things actually means 
all things. It means our living days, our sustaining days, and our dying days. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And that's why James told us in, in his letter in the New Testament, James told us this is how we should live our lives. If the Lord wills, we will live. You remember that? We've looked at that before. He's talking about there's a man one day who went to a town and he made plans for his life. He said, I have ambitions and goals. I'm going to go to a city. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to spend a year here. This is what I'm going to accomplish here. And then I will get on and I'll do this thing next and this thing next. And James says, no, really, this is how you ought to live. If God wills it and nothing prevents it, I'll still be here tomorrow, right? And that is having a confidence in the sovereignty of God. Because so often I think sovereignty is one of those doctrines that we just mentally assent to. I say to you, hey, do you believe in the sovereignty of God? And many of you, if not most of you, would go, of course I do. God is sovereign. He, he's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's, he, he's all-powerful. He, he, he's all of these, these things, theologically speaking. He's all of these things. He is sovereign. And then I look at you and say, well, how does that impact your life? And how are you applying the doctrine of sovereignty on a daily basis in your life? And you go, huh? <laughs> I, 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 I don't know what you mean. How, how would one apply the doctrine of sovereignty in their life? Well, it is to believe. It is to have confidence in the divine timetable in your own life. Even when you don't understand it. Even when you don't know all of the, the pieces and, and when the hour will come. It's to go about your life with this mindset, if God wills it and nothing prevents it, all of my days, living and dying, are in his hands. How does that now affect the way I make decisions and the way that I treat people and the way that I do what I do and the things that I chase in my life? If I believe in the sovereignty of God, it's believing, it's believing that our life isn't by happenstance, it's not, not by chance, and it's not by the power of our will or our might, but our life is lived in God's hands, which is good news. By the way, it's good news that life isn't just random. And Jesus said it this way in Matthew 10. He said this, Are not two sparrows sold for just a cent? They're, in other words, they're just not worth much, right? Are they not sold for just uh, for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground. What does he mean? Die. Sparrows are like, you know, a penny, a penny a two, a dime a dozen, right? They're not worth anything. And yet not one of them will even die apart from your father. But for you, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. And the point Jesus is making is that God's watchful eye, his compassionate care, and his purposeful plan for your days are all sorted out. And God has his eye on you. He cares deeply for you. He has numbered your days, and he seeks to work his goodness and his grace and his mercy through your life every day until the day that you do die. And if you are in Christ, then it only gets better, right? So is sovereignty something that we just assent to, or is it something that we, we, we live by? Do we trust in the divine timetable that God has for our lives as Jesus does here in this terrifying moment? And it's obvious as we read the Gospels, as we see this, that God cares for us and his care for us is good he's for us it's good for us and for that reason jesus is also for his father are we like jesus for what god has in store for us that's the second thing that's on jesus's mind in the terrifying moments before he's arrested and crucified it's it's god's glory it's desire that god's glory would be revealed in him at all costs you hear that 
That's the thing on, on his mind. It's a desire for God's glory to be revealed no matter the cost. And you see this. You can just circle or underline the word glorify over and over and over again in this text. Uh, in verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Now I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you've given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory that I had with you before the world was. Counting the hours before his suffering, his beatings, his torture, and his death, Jesus wasn't praying for relief. He was praying for glory. You see that? And so many of my prayers are inhabited by, by mercy. Lord, just, it hurts a little bit. And it's like a little pinch. Jesus knows full well the pain, not just the physical pain, but the torture of bearing the sins of the world, the separation he's going to experience from his father for the first time in, in existence, in eternity. He knows the burden and the difficulty and the torture that's ahead for him, but he doesn't pray for relief. He prays for glory. His primary concern is that the Father would glorify him, that he may glorify the Father. And understand, the context is the cross. It's not that he's saying, would you glorify me by making me popular and, and making people like me more? It's not about personal pleasure here. No, his eye is on the cross because when we pray at Lent, we're praying with our eyes closed but one open looking at the cross. And that's what Jesus is doing right here. He lifts his eyes uh, above in verse 1, but one eye is always looking at the cross. And looking at the cross, he says, Father, would you glorify me here so that I may glorify you for all. How does the cross glorify the Father? Well, it, it glorifies God because it shows that God is true to his word, that his word stands, that if God says that the penalty for sin is death, then it is death. And so often in our lives when the rules are inconvenient, we begin to bend and twist and change the rules a little bit. But God won't do that here. He won't bend the rules. He won't move the boundaries. He won't undo and, and redefine the system because it's painful to him. And so here we, we see at the cross he's glorified in that his holiness cannot be diluted. His justice cannot be diluted. God is holy. His word is stands. His word is faithful. And nothing will change that, even if it costs him his own son. And we see that as Jesus is glorified on the cross. Not only is the, to glorify really means not to make something that's not uh, full of glory pretty. It means to reveal the glory that's already there. And so he's glorified because his holiness is seen. But not only his holiness, God's love for his people is seen here. Because as his holiness and his justice is upheld in the death of Jesus, so too is God's incomparable love for us. Because while the wages of sin is death, God so loved the world that he sent his son to pay that price, to, to have that death, to be that substitute for us to atone for our sins, to redeem our lives. And God does glorify Jesus at the cross so that his people can be saved from the penalty of their sin. The reason that Jesus prays, Father, glorify me so that I may glorify you, it's not about Jesus saying, hey, this is my prayer so often. God, if you, if you just make me, remember when I was a teenager, God, if you could just make me a really good singer, I'd only sing Christian songs, you know? <laughs> I prayed that, you know. Jesus isn't saying, Father, if you would just glorify me here, I promise I'll do some good stuff with it, you know. 
He's saying, God, if you would reveal to all of the world the nature of who I truly am, the nature of divine holiness, the nature of perfect love, oh, you'd be so glorified by those who see it and those who turn to me for it. Those two things come together, the holiness and the love of God simultaneously at the cross, and they have a an efficacy in our life that we might experience salvation and redemption. And that's the thing that, that leads to what Jesus is, what's on Jesus' mind as well. What, it's the third thing, and I, I want to I highlight one more thing, though, in this. It says, the glory which I had with you before the world was. This is a pretty, <laughs> it's a pretty powerful line, one that you could skip over quickly. He says, Father, would you return to me the glory? Would you reveal in me the glory that I always had with you in eternity? What I want you to understand is that, that Jesus never for one minute stopped being God. Even in his incarnation, even as he walked on earth, he never stopped being God. You remember Philippians 2? Philippians 2 says, even though he was in the very form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And the word grasped means to be held on to. But instead, he opened his hands and he emptied himself, taking on the form of of a servant, and he did so so that he would not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10 says, right? So Jesus, instead of holding on to the glory, he, he pushes it aside, and in, in, in his humanity, he takes on a, a flesh, an incarnate flesh. Remember the transfiguration that's pulled aside, and you see the glory, but when he walked his days on earth, he hid his glory, and he prays, Father, would you restore the true image, reveal the true image of who I am, fullness of glory that I always had with you. And he prays this, and, and it's important for us. Why is it good for us that he has his glory revealed as he truly is? Well, it's not simply because it's right that he is glorified, but it's also good for us because there's a promise throughout the New Testament, a promise of the gospel that he will share his glory with us. It's not only right that Jesus is glorified, it's good for us that Jesus is glorified. There's hope for us if Jesus is glorified because the Bible promises us that he will raise us with him, that he will share his glory with us. What does it mean to be glorified with Jesus? Well, listen, the three things it means to be glorified with Jesus. One, it means that sin will forever, finally be removed from your experience. The consequences of sin, the pain, the suffering, the anxiety, the trauma, the conflict, all that comes with brokenness and sin will finally and forever be removed from your experience. That's one thing that it means to be glorified with Jesus. The second thing is that temptation will cease to exist in your life. You'll never experience temptation to sin, temptation to turn your back on God, temptation to walk in your own apart from abundant life in Christ. That will cease to exist finally and forever. And there's the promise that we will also have glorified bodies, glorified minds, bodies that don't break down, that don't grow weary, that don't grow sick, minds that aren't struggling and full of worry and full of self-doubt and full of confusion, hearts that aren't conflicted, lives that are lived in the open and light before God, glorified with Jesus. It's the promise over and over again in the scriptures. And I want to give you three verses to look up this week, just to kind of to sit on this, to think about this. Romans 8, 17, write these down. Romans 8, 17, Ephesians 2, 6, and 2 Thessalonians 2, 14. There's so many more. Here's three examples. Go read these. 
and see how when Jesus returns, he raises us up and we're glorified with him. And all that that entails for us is massively life-changing and transforming. It's wonderful. It's not just good that Jesus prays that his glory is revealed and restored to the way it was before he had come in incarnation. It's good for us because he promises when he returns, we'll experience it fully in ourselves. And that leads again to the promises found in the third thing on Jesus' mind. Third thing on Jesus' mind, it's in having his prayer, is eternal life. That eternal life is the gift of knowing God in Jesus. I think a lot of us, when we think about eternal life, uh, we think often first about a place, heaven, or a period of time, the days and the hours ahead for us. We think eternal life, a place and a time, a location and a chronology, right? But this is how Jesus defines eternal life. Look at verse 3. This is eternal life. In other words, I'm going to define for you what eternal life is. This is it. That they may know you, Father, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. This is eternal life. It's knowing God. And, of course, it means so much more than just an intellectual knowledge of God because James tells us that even the demons believe that there's a God, right? That doesn't mean that they're saved or redeemed. It doesn't mean that their lives are full of hope and full of joy. They are demons. It says that they even believe that there's a God and they shudder because they don't bow before him, because they have rejected him. This is more than an intellectual uh, knowledge of God. This is a knowing that Jesus is speaking. It's a knowing that means knowing God dwelling in your heart and in your, your head and coming out through your life. It is life lived with God. Eternal life is being connected to God. It's not living on your own. It's having the presence of God with you in all of your days. It's having the knowledge of God, the mercy of God, the compassion of God, the love of God, the glory of God carried with you through all of your days. And we cannot know the Father apart from the Son. That's what we're told in John 14. You cannot know the Father apart from the Son. This is eternal life that you would know. They would know the one and only God and His Son, Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes, that word means entrusts themselves to him, may have what? Eternal life. This is eternal life, that you know Jesus. You're connected to him. You live life dwelling with him. It's a quality of life, way before it's a quantity of life. You hear that? It's a quality of life before it's a quantity of life. In fact, it's a quality of being kept in Jesus' grace, abiding in his life and in his love, abiding in him that has a byproduct that is a quantity. It's a quality which has a byproduct of quantity. And Jesus taught this. Here's an example of it in, uh, in chapter 10. Verse 27, he's talking about being the good shepherd. Jesus says this. He says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. That's eternal life, right? That is an example 
uh, of verse 3 of our chapter. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. Uh, I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Which, by the way, that's a quotation from Isaiah 43, 13. No one will snatch anything out of God's hand. No one will undo what God has done. My Father who has given them to me, verse 2, we'll see it in a second, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That's why it's a quality of life which leads to a quantity. Eternal life is a quality that leads to a quantity. Verse 2, even as you, Father, have given them to him, the Son, to me, authority over all flesh, that's Jews, Gentiles, to the ends of the earth, that to all whom you've given, he may give eternal life. Eternal life is not something that we can ever earn by character or conduct. It's something he says he gives. You hear that? You cannot earn a knowledge of God. You cannot buy it. You cannot barter for it. You can't achieve it. It's something that he gives and we receive. We receive it by admitting that we are broken, by admitting that we don't have all of the answers, we don't have all the solutions. We are sinners in need of help and we can't solve the problem by repenting, by turning to Jesus to meet that need that we cannot meet, and by remaining in Him, by abiding in Him, by entrusting our days to Him and Him alone for life now and forever. It's something that He gives to us and we receive from Him, and He will hold us fast. He will not let us go. We'll abide in Him, He'll abide in us. And that's why eternal life is a quality that leads to a quantity. And the best place, the best place that you can be is in those hands. Okay, so what's the point of all of this? Some sermons are those, and I say this sometimes and you can laugh at me, are teachy-teachy. That's what Patrick likes to laugh at me. And I'm like, here's 10 tips for, for doing this better this week. This isn't one of those kinds of sermons. The whole point of this really is just to do what Jesus did at the beginning of verse one. It's to raise our eyes for a moment. That in the middle of our days and our pursuits, middle of our joys, in the middle of our, our anxieties, middle of our struggles, in the middle of our, our successes, for a moment we take our eyes off of our ambitions, off of our lives, off of the, the holes in front of us and the ground that we may step in, and for a moment we just raise our eyes and we look above. And we would see something when in the midst of our busy lives, like Lent, we say, I'm going to intentionally look up. One eye on the cross. And there's a couple of things I want you to see as you look up. I want you to see the real desire and commitment of God to you and for you. When you look up, do you see the real desire of God to you and for you? Do you see a father who would not spare his own son because of his depth of love for you? Do you see a son who, being God himself, could change the way things happen? Who could not have laid himself out on a cross. No one took him. He gave himself. In fact, it says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He did so because of his great love for you. When you raise your eyes, do you see a son who says, I'm not going to spare my life for this hour, for this purpose. I've come to this hour. Do you see that when you look up? See the depth of the love, the commitment of God to you and for you? That's the second thing I hope you see, that Jesus is here praying And this is a, we have all these other moments where it says Jesus went off by himself to pray. You, you see that, right? 
And Jesus went alone by himself to a quiet place. He went alone to a mountain to pray. But here, he allows the disciples and he allows us to eavesdrop on the, one of the most intimate conversations he could have at one of the most terrifying moments in his life with his father. He allows a window to open that we might see through it to the depth of his soul in a moment where his soul is grieved even to the point of death. And he does so that we might see the intimacy, see the depth of relationship that he has with his father. And we might begin to learn from his relationship with his father how to have that same kind of relationship with God in prayer. He opens these prayers before us that we might learn from him that there is a greater point and purpose for prayer in our life than it being a little glass box break in case of emergency. Or now all that we have left to do is pray. But we might see here that there's a greater purpose and point for prayer in our life. It is a, it is a life-giving conversation in which we may grow in dependence on the sovereignty of God. We may understand that his eye is upon us. His hand is upon our lives and that he has a purposeful plan for your life, for all of your days living, all of your days until the day that you die. And even then he has an intent and a purpose for you that is good and better than any plan that you've come up for yourself. That we might grow in understanding and dependence, confidence on the sovereign and securing hand of God. That we might grow a desire to glorify God, that he would be glorified and magnified in us. Because as people see the work of Jesus in us, one, that's abundant life that we're walking in. So I'm not walking in this lesser existence where I'm just trying to scrape and scratch and make it through life. Maybe I can make it through today, but instead, no, I'm living by the power of God in me. The Holy Spirit has filled me up and is bursting forth from me. That's why I'm not lost to despair. And as I encounter people in life, they see that and they go, there's hope in this world. Where does it come from? And as we talk with God in prayer, not about things that he doesn't know, but things that he already knows, we just invite him into those things. We begin to trust and desire more and more that his glory being seen in us and through us is the very best thing that could happen in any situation and any circumstance in our life. We might grow in that if we learn to pray as Jesus is praying here. And listen, maybe most deeply, Maybe most deeply the thing we might learn from this moment in Jesus' prayer is the weight of the beautiful gift of eternal life, which encompasses who we are, who we aspire to be, all the doubts, all the fears, all the insecurities, all the plans, all the assumptions, all of the, the ambitions that we might have. It wraps it all up and says, this is life, an eternal life. It's knowing God. It's knowing Him. Until we understand that the point of our lives is knowing God, nothing else will make sense. <laughs> so Jesus gives us this window into his prayer with his Father. And it's a great moment for us to learn the heart and the purpose of prayer. It is not a burden-giving duty. It's a burden-lifting delight. It's not telling God stuff he doesn't know. It's inviting him into the stuff that he already knows about. Saying, God, do your work in me because your work is good in me, right? Right? And I pray this morning for you that as we enter into this season of Lent over the next several weeks, that you would find new highs and even new lows in prayer, where you would find places where you have to go low and say, Father, I haven't trusted you. There's some ways I've been living, seeking to live life on my own, and I haven't trusted you. I need you. He's not surprised. He knows this. Things aren't fine. <laughs> he knows. And in highs, you might say, Father, you are good. You are good. Oh, oh. Father, you are so good. I want to invite you just now to pray with me in that way. 
Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth and in my life and in my home and in my marriage and in my parenting and in my work and in my friendships and even in my pastimes, may it be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Help us to trust you for it. Help us to glorify you for it. Help us to praise you for it. Help us to walk with, with hearts full of gratitude for all the everyday mercies that we overlook each day. Forgive us our sins. Because we can say that one. And in Christ, we know that we've been forgiven. So I don't ask forgiveness. I praise you for forgiveness. Forgiveness upon forgiveness that never ends. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. The glory and the power forever.